0: Um, thank you Pastor Mike for um uh of this morning. Appreciate that. I double booked myself inadvertently. So grateful you were able to step in. You know what you can do, bruv? You can just take me out of this one or turn me down in that one. check, 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 check. So we're getting ready to start a new series. And as you can see, it's the gospel according to Luke. And we are going to be getting up close and personal with the Lord himself. Can you guys hear me? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Praise God. Good, good. Thank you. Um, yeah, yeah, that's all right. Cause it was a bit ringy. So as long as you can hear me, that's the most important thing. My mouth is big anyway. And so it's all good. Linda's laughing at me. It's all right. <laughs> it's okay. I said it, you fought it. (laughs) So we're looking at the gospel according to Luke. And Luke presents to us the hope of humanity. Um, Jesus, the son of man. And um, I don't know if any of you have ever experienced being hoaxed before. Being hoaxed, like somebody pulling a hoax on you. Um... So there are some things you can't really afford to get hoaxed over. Um, Maybe once you've tried to purchase something online, you've gone to purchase it, and the item's not come, you've lost your money, and you just felt gutted that you got hoaxed. And maybe you were grateful that it wasn't too much an amount of money that you spent, but nonetheless, it burns, right, when you feel like you've been hoaxed. Um, uh, That's definitely happened to me. Uh, even just up to the other day, not something as serious, but somebody at work shared a, a post uh, on our um, work team's channel, and um, they were quoting a, a, a speech that someone was said to have given um, one of the founders of our organisation, LCM, and I'm looking at the speech and I'm like, this is a... Mm, some, so somebody had been in the archives and, and found this speech, and now it's just been presented to us, and I'm looking at this speech thinking, wow, what a treasure that this speech has been found and that it's been now shared with us. And uh, we've got an event coming up and I was getting ready to quote from this speech or from one of the founders. And as I'm typing in the, the channel a few days after it's been posted, and you know, what a treasured speech this is. My gosh. Uh, well, it's from ChatGPT. Because I put in, it was April Fool's. I put in there, I put in there, the, 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 you know, the name of the founder and some of the books that relate to him. And then I said, give me a speech that says this from this person. And this artificial, that let me underline, intelligence, created this speech. And it was a bagging speech. Quotable with gospel, with Bible verses, everything in there. hmm Listen, we live in dangerous times, you know. <laughs> I have to tell my man to get out of here with them things. We're going to have to um, fact check everything that we find now. And so um, we all had a laugh about it, but I guess it really exemplifies the fact that it's very easy in our day and age to get duped. Yeah. To get duped. Fake news, false facts. My truth, your truth. And there's a level at which, as we engage with the gospel according to Luke, we're going to be encouraged not only at the integrity with which Luke approaches um, the, the, this, the portrayal, the um, declaring of the gospel, but also the way in which it speaks as a lesson to us, a lesson to us with regards to how we can actually even just approach and discern True truths, even as it becomes harder. The reality is that when it comes to eternal life, that's something we can't afford to be duped over. We can't afford to get conned when it comes to eternal life. Destiny is at stake. And so as Luke uh, approaches with great substance and integrity the declaration of the gospel, we're able to take confidence in that and also learn from those principles as he presents to us, Jesus, the son of man, the hope of humanity. And so we're going to be looking at Luke chapter one. And um, in these first couple of chapters, we see Luke introducing the savior. Allow me to reintroduce the Lord. He's introducing the savior. And in doing so, he's ensuring that he's establishing the, the history and credibility And he tells us his commitment and his approach to actually making sure that people take seriously what it is that he's endeavored to present. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 38 today of chapter 1. Um, And I'm not going to read the whole section now, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the sections as we come to them. And so let me pray, and then we'll get into it. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself in a sure way to us, humanity, not just us sitting here in this place at this time, but you revealed yourself to humanity in the person of Christ. And you have given us sure reason to believe the presentation of the truth that we've received. And so, Lord, I pray that our hearts will be galvanized, that we would be strengthened in faith today, that we would trust you more, that, Lord, we would love you more fervently, that we would serve you more um, committedly, Lord, that, Lord, we would share you more generously with others. And so, Lord, I pray that you would have your way in and through us today as we look at you through your word, by your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so, I've got the slides here. Thank you. If I've got a problem, I holler. So, some of you will recognise this visual. Um, the Bible Project have been a blessing to the to the globe through the the ministry that they carry out online, and these are snapshots um, from their introduction to the Book of Luke. Um, as your homework. I'm I'm setting you the task of going and watching the two-part introduction to the book of Luke. Watch it a few times. And when I say watch, I don't mean just listen to it as it's talking in the background, but you have to watch the visuals as well, because they're so intricately um, presented that you can get additional details from the visuals in addition to what you're hearing. So if you're unfamiliar, then um, uh, do uh, avail yourself. And if you think you know, then forget what you know and go back and look again. The gospel according to Luke. Now, first and foremost, as we look at the gospel according to Luke, I want us to notice that it's one gospel. It's not the gospel of Luke, but the gospel according to Luke. There's a difference. What's the difference? The gospel of Luke versus the gospel according to Luke. Alright, so it's his account, but as Pastor B said, the gospel, single definite article. And if we were to say the gospel of Luke, that would suggest that it's his gospel, There's only one gospel, it's God's gospel. And what we're presented in the four gospels are different views of the one good news. Some have historically portrayed this um, relating to imagery from Ezekiel and and even the book of Revelation, where you see uh, an angel with four faces one of a, a lion of a man, of an eagle, of an ox. Mm. And each of these are said to represent each aspect of the gospel. And so, in Ezekiel, I think it's um, maybe chapter 4, we see the, the portrayal of these angels with four faces, and it says about these angels that when they move, they don't turn. Any direction they go, they just move in that direction. And so they just move forward, or they just move to the side, or they just move, or they just move back. But they don't turn. They don't need to, because they've got four faces facing in each direction. And so there's almost a sense of us getting a 360 view of God through the four perspectives of the gospel. Now, you might say, well, how do these features relate to the gospels that we're familiar with? Well, Matthew is said to be the gospel that presents Jesus as Israel's king. His genealogy starts with Abraham. He quotes from the Old Testament more than any of the other gospel writers. And so we see this sense of Matthew presenting Jesus as Israel's king, the lion, conquering lion of the tribe of Judah. All right. And yet it is said that um, the, the, the ox is a representation of Mark, Mark's gospel, key verse in Mark 10. Um, "I've come not to serve, but to, no, I've come not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many." The, 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 the burden-bearer, the beast of burden, the ox, the servant, Mark's gospel. There's no, interestingly, there's no genealogy in Mark's gospel. Sixteen chapters of action just gets into it. Mm. (laughs) Yet the eagle, the eagle is said to be representative of John's gospel. Because John made it clear at the end in chapter 20 that he's presented this gospel that we might believe what? that Jesus is the son of God. Is that what he said? Oh, oh. And that we might have eternal life through faith in him. The son of God's heavenly perspective, the eagle with eagle eyes. Remember, the, remember Action Man and he said, eagle eye. Yeah, 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 I'm taking it back. <laughs> eagle eyes. Interestingly, John's gospel doesn't start with a genealogy what does it start where does it start i should say eternity in the beginning was the word he goes beyond before creation again this sense of an eternal view is the a heavenly view is the perspective that is being given And so that leaves us with the the, the face of a man, which is said to correspond to um, the book of Luke. This is another portrayal. I quite like this one. Um, It almost seems like you see three until you look at the horns. And then you realize that the fourth is on the other side. The expression. mm, The crying out. Mm, Must be that. I don't know. (laughs) But I like this one. And the reality is that each of the the gospel um, uh, narrators, if you like, each of the gospel um, authors are presenting to us the one gospel from different perspectives. Now, we understand and appreciate that there is much correlation between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so they say that 90% of the content is is, um, mirrored in those Gospels, and that's why they're called the synoptic Gospels. Optic, C, syn being uh, aligned, and as as in S-Y-N, synoptic Gospels. And so they are um, visually aligned. When you look at them, you can see that they're um, sharing from common information. And yet when we consider Luke and the gospel according to Luke, we recognize that actually Luke's intention was that it be part one of a two-part series, Luke and Acts. And we see that from the beginning of Luke when he addresses Theophilus and also the beginning of Acts when he addresses Theophilus. And so it's, it's actually suggested that um, Luke was um, collating his gospel as he was on the road with the Apostle Paul, and as Acts was actually in in progress, and he was um, recording the, the events of Acts as he was going along. Um Few things we learn uh, about Luke as the author. We see that Luke is a doctor. It is suggested that he is a, a Gentile or Hellenistic Jew. Oh, that didn't come up as I expected, but nonetheless, we move. Um that, so he's a he's a physician, a doctor, a, a medical doctor, um, that he was not a, a full-blown Jew. So he was a Gentile or Hellenistic Jew. Now, Hellenistic Jew basically means somebody who is um, Jewish by birth, but Greek by culture. And so um, it might be like for some of us that were born here, but of a different national heritage. And so... Um, our culture is more, say, British than it is uh, national heritage. Um, and so, it's considered that he was either or, and we see this from uh, another reference in Colossians, where the Apostle Paul is referring to those who are of the circumcision. Then after he refers to them, he refers to Luke as somebody else who's with them. So, he didn't mention Luke as part of those who are of the circumcision. It's significant because Luke is somebody who writes from the perspective of the underdog more than any other of the gospel writers. And when I say the under, underdog, I'm talking about the social outcasts, the poor, those who are looked down on, those who are of low social status and outsiders. He speaks about Gentiles. He speaks about women. He speaks about those with disabilities um, and so on and so forth. Um, more than any of the other gospel writers. And so he really considers the humanity of those who interact with Jesus and Jesus's focus on their humanity. Um, Again, as you can see, there's a a lot of info there. I don't need to repeat it because you can watch it on YouTube. Um, But this sense of freedom, and this is looking at the quote from Jesus in Luke chapter 4, When he goes into the temple and he unrolls a scroll, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the good news to the who? To the poor. Does that mean it's only for the poor? No, but the reality is that if you hit the lowest common denominator, you're sure that the rest will get it. If they're left out, it's quite likely that they may not get it. Because people like to put stuff behind pay gates, right? Behind paywalls. And keep it within their tight social circles, and be exclusive about things. And so, those who they, they say that um, uh, that that you, that you have the haves and the have-nots, and those who have not can only become those who have if they get a bring-in, because the have have it all. And yet, the Lord was intentional about reaching the have-nots in order that none would be left out. And so we see this about Luke, that he is very empathetic towards those who are not in the in crowd. Um, now we see that Luke, in terms of his writing of the gospel, um, is, his writings are regarded to be of the highest quality historic literature just on the basis of literature itself, he's regarded to be a top quality writer. And so, even those who don't believe in the gospel, they don't believe in the content of the gospel, recognize the quality of its writing, um, the quality of it as as a a piece of literature, and um, at the very least, it is studied by many for those qualities. But that goes to show how meticulous and diligent and thorough Luke was in his approach. In fact, his style of presentation is very much in keeping with what is known as Greek histographic uh, tradition. So it was on the level of of Greek writings of his day. And so anyone from those communities who would have come come upon it would have looked at it, and they wouldn't have looked down on it as being, uh, this is some, you know, budget tabloid for the little knockoff, you know. (laughs) Uh, Exactly. Writing to a very distinguished man. And so in that, we see that it's a quality piece of writing that we're engaging with. Now, um, let's look at the first few verses, um, because in it, Luke states his approach. concerning the things you have been taught, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So the stories of Jesus had been circulating. As those people were encountering Jesus, they were telling, retelling the accounts. It's, you know, you have a, an exciting experience, and evidently the next thing you're going to do is talk about it. People experienced Jesus, they were talking about it, some who followed after Jesus would have been making their own personal notes. And so although normally and pervasively, things were spread by oral tradition, telling stories, um, it doesn't mean that there, were, there weren't those who also made their own written notes. And so as Luke um, sets himself the task of um, giving Theophilus Uh, uh, most excellent Theophilus and account, he engages, one, with those things that he knows has happened. He says, look, I've been an observer, in verse 1. I've I've been an observer, and I'm now going to collate together from the eyewitnesses those things that have happened so that there is an orderly account. Now, who is this Theophilus? We don't know. There isn't anywhere that it expands. The name's mentioned here and in Acts. There isn't anything more that is said um, about this Theophilus. Um, We don't know if it was an actual person or if it was like a, a code name. So Theophilus is Theo... God-file-love. Um, um, and it's, it's for God-lovers everywhere. Well, it is for God-lovers everywhere. Those who love God. Um, most commentators would say, actually, there is, it's likely that there was an individual who was known as Theophilus and who was of high standing. One of the reasons that that was considered was because it might have been that Theophilus actually sponsored the creation of this gospel. Um, The 24 chapters uh, is such that to have writings on papyrus of that amount, that volume would have been extremely expensive in those days. And so people wouldn't have undertaken to utilize that what would have been modern technology at the time at such great expense um, of of their own. So that is a consideration that has been put forward, although others would have said, well, Luke was a doctor, and it's likely that actually he could have afforded to do that himself anyway. So pros and cons. But having closely followed what has happened, his aim is to write an orderly account and I, I want us to to note that he is intent on engaging with eyewitness material. So he's not dealing with circumstantial or hearsay, he's dealing with first hand testimony. Again, this supports the fact that Luke was determined to present the truth of the matter. Now, one of the things we see in Luke, and that he does very meticulously, is that he triangulates truth. And this is a very helpful lesson for us. What do I mean by triangulating truth? He endeavors to ensure that the information he presents is actually factual. He's not as I mentioned, engaging in hearsay. And one of the ways in which he ensures the credibility of that information, in addition to engaging with the eyewitnesses, he is ensuring that these three items, these three aspects are clearly denoted as he goes through. And I I would encourage you, um, as we go through the series and as you read through the book of Luke, um, look out for the way in which that, um, Luke uses these three um, references. He names people specifically, people that can be cross-referenced, people that can be questioned. His writings were within one generation, within the lifetime of those who witnessed Jesus. And so, Many of those people would still have been alive. It's like we see the Apostle Paul saying, First Corinthians 15. He says, "And Jesus was seen by over 500 witnesses, many of whom are still alive." Basically, subtext: Go and ask them for yourself. Likewise, Luke is clear, intent on carefully naming people, and the reality is that by doing so, he's putting them in history. He's doing so uh, able to um, anchor us in a a location, the place, or a period of time. And so this is, you know, fundamental to something being established as factual. They say you can't necessarily trust the information you have on Wikipedia. Why not? I mean, we teach this to our kids in schools, right? I hope. (laughs) But this is what we teach. Like, if you're researching something, you can't really trust what's on Wikipedia. Why not? Because people put the information on there themselves. And if you've ever tried to put information on Wikipedia, or you've seen um, citation pending on, on a piece of information on Wikipedia, you'll realize that actually, even when you put something on Wikipedia, you're supposed to put your reference, your source... You're supposed to cite your source to indicate, this isn't just out of my head, but this is something that is corroborated by someone else, somewhere else, at some point in time. This is what Luke is enabling us to do. And this is especially important in this era, as we said, where we live in a post-truth society, where we view and see the erosion of truth the erosion of truth. And it's, you know, we went from being uh, relativists, and so there are belief systems, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, and, you know, even atheism, etc. You've got these belief systems, and people maybe chose a belief, or they mixed between the established belief systems. Then people became hyper-relativists, or postmodern, and people just discredited the belief systems and just began to pick and choose whatever they wanted from anywhere, and mix and blend and come up with their own version. And yet, we've now come to this point where it's, we're post-truth. I mean, what is truth? Which is the the famous words of Pontius Pilate. And there's a clear sense that we have lost an understanding and appreciation of what truth is in our day. Now, we speak in these terms my truth. I'm just living my truth. Living your truth. Speak your truth. And it can kind of almost feel hard to um, know how to take that because, on one hand, people have their views. But if we're calling something the truth, doesn't that suggest it's more than a view? Mm. All right, Pilate asked the question, what is truth? Generally, in the first century, they would have considered that which is real to be true. Um, that which is verifiably objective as experience. Subjective is it's, my view it's just in my head. Objective is a commonly shared experience or view that is able to be verified. And we see that this is the standard upon which God had worked throughout the Old Testament. God said, I've raised this person up as a prophet, but you don't have to just take their word for it. They will do what the words that they say will come to pass, And in Deuteronomy, it says, if the words of the prophet don't come to pass, stone that person. They're a false prophet. If there isn't an experience that everyone can see and witness objectively, that verifies the words of the prophet, then write that person off. So that's been the standard. And that's what caused the prophets to be recognized and esteemed, because actually they were rated they were verified, validated, got their blue tick buy it from God because the things that they said came to pass. There's a lot of people today running around claiming to be prophets. Let's hold them to the same standard. That which is true must be that which is factually correct and or what is morally right. And so you can say from the point of view of science or maths or um, empirical, what they call empirical evidence, is something factually correct that will be considered true. We get into the range of morality and we, we begin to get into very weak territory because in our own lifetimes, we've seen morality shift. Once upon a time... In this country, it used to be illegal to um, engage in a homosexual relationship. In this country, 70 years ago, it was illegal. Now, morality has shifted. So how are we to discern what is uh, truly morally right without it shifting like the sands of time? there has to be a recognition that if we're going to say something is morally right and something is morally wrong, there must be an ultimate standard that it is judged against. And that ultimate standard is the absolute truth, which is God's view. There isn't any other reference by which we can uh, establish or or reckon. uh, It's like, if I say we're going to run a mile, you can't cheat me by saying... Cool, half a mile later, we're finished. (laughs) You're feeling tired, we're finished. (laughs) Couch to 5K, 2K later, we're finished. Because we have a standard of reference that all of us can look at and say, that's not a full mile, that's not a full 5K. That standard is God's view. And Jesus, when he said, I am the truth, This is him expressing the fact that I am the revelation of God's view. I am the revelation of God. And I am the expression of God's standard of truth. Truth is defined by me, God. Everything that God expressed corresponds with the the three aspects considered to be truth: That which is real, that which is true, that which is absolute all finds its fulfillment and summation in Jesus. And so, as we go through, look out for how Luke uses the references to people, which will include their position, status, or heritage. Because again, these are objective realities that can be verified. How he refers to place, or time period. He might say it was at this time of the year or at this point in a person's reign. All right, so as we look at chapter one, that's the introduction to the, the book. Um, by God's grace, we're not gonna be um, long in this. We're gonna see two angelic announcements. Firstly, The announcement of the birth of John the Baptist to Zechariah. And secondly, we're going to see the announcement of the birth of Jesus to Mary. Two angelic announcements. So let's look at verses 5 to 25. This thing is really sticky today. All right, I'm going to start reading. I don't know if you could um, forward the next slide to, yeah, to the next slide with the um, Bible text on it. Hmm. Luke chapter 1, verse 5 to 25, reading from the ESV. You can follow along in your Bible. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there we go, there was a priest named Zechariah. Of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Uh, pause there to highlight this is what you might call couple goals. Uh, that's what they call it, right? Couples' goal. Cu- couples' goal. Uh, you know what I mean? So, so you see this couple, um, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and Zechariah is a priest, and you see his heritage of the division of Abijah, and he's married to Elizabeth, who is from the daughters of Aaron. Now, who was Aaron back in the Old Testament, if you can remember? High priest. High priest. So this priest, Zechariah, was dedicated to the Lord, and as a, as a priest, um, he wasn't a high priest, and so therefore, he had the option to marry those who were not from a priestly family, but he chose to marry someone from a priestly family. She was of the daughters of Aaron. And, and it's a bit like, as believers, making the choice to say, you know what? I want to be married, but I'm only going to marry a Christian. Now, the reality is that when we look at the Scriptures, it, it doesn't give us another choice. <laughs> But in life, there is always another choice, if you get what I'm saying. And yet, Zechariah and Elizabeth were given to, I'm not just having a heritage, but living out their identity in God. He was a priest. He was serving actively in the temple. And it goes on to say in verse 6, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years. Now, one of the things that encourages me here is the fact that you can see in verse 6 that they were righteous before God. Yeah, we read that. Hopefully, you're following in your Bibles. You can see that. And yet, even though they were righteous before God, they didn't have a child. And often, when people find themselves in a situation like that, where that which they desire is not being fulfilled, the feeling can be, God doesn't love me. Maybe I've done something wrong. Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I haven't got enough faith. None of those things were true for this couple, None of those things. In fact, the Lord had purposed that they would arrive at this point in their lives, past childbearing age, in order to have a a significant event take place, not just in their lives, but in the life of their nation. God's purposes are greater than we will often realize. And so, don't be discouraged. Continue to seek and serve the Lord. Continue to follow after him like Elizabeth and Zachariah. You might be holding out for better days in your marriage. You may be praying for your children to be more um, committed and godly. And you're not seeing these things fulfilled. Nonetheless, know that God is faithful and God does what is best as having a conversation with someone. And we were talking about the the saying, be careful what you pray for. Because we see examples in the Old Testament. uh, Who was it? Hezekiah. God said to him, I'm going to cut your life short. He begged and pleaded, Lord, no, 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 please, 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 please. No, Lord, please don't. Please don't. Please don't. And the Lord was like, all right, then he had, after the Lord spared his life, he had a child, Manasseh. He was, he was declared to be the most wicked king that ever lived in the, in the nation. If the Lord had taken him at the time he had said, <laughs> the people would have been spared that. Be careful what you pray for, isn't it? Sometimes we just have to learn to take God's no. And know that it's for the best. Huh. So, uh, where's my finger? And I've lost it. They were both righteous, and yet Elizabeth was barren, and they were advanced in years, saying that basically that they were past childbearing age. Um, looking at what was that verse eight. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, and you notice with the colors, I've heat mapped the people, place, and, and period. So, the colors have that significance. Uh, keep that in mind. Um, now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, He was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So this wasn't a private occurrence. It would have been not only a a historic um, activity that would have been documented in their history um, as they do. Uh, which is one of the reasons why we're seeing it here. But it was also verifiable. And there were others there who witnessed it at that location. And it goes on to say, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now, I haven't, I've, we've got an angel introduced to the situation here, and I haven't colored that because he was in there by himself. It's not openly objective. So anyone could question, did he really see an angel? Well, it's a a reasonable question to ask. And we shouldn't be afraid to ask questions of the text. God is big enough to answer every question. Did he really see an angel? Well, let's consider the evidence. Angel of the Lord appeared to him there, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. So the angel speaks to him, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. Okay, so he's going to have a child, and his child is going to be great. One of the questions is to look back and say, did that happen? And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Did they have a child? Was he great? Was he filled with the Holy Spirit? Even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Again, a question to be asked. And he will go before him in the spirit of power and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Now, just to highlight, we see here that it states that His son, who shall be called John, will go in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Make him ready for the Lord, a a people prepared. And this is fundamentally a direct reference to the end of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, the last chapter, the last time God spoke from um, from the mouth of the prophets. And this is what it says in verses five and six. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so there's a foreboding sense of judgment that's to come. And yet the Lord is going to send a voice Uh, an agent calling the people to repentance. Now, this was the last time that God spoke by the prophets for 400 years. And so, there's been this anticipation. Who's this? Elijah's going to come again. When's he going to come? Are we going to see him? Is he going to be in our generation? And the centuries went on. And yet, the people as a nation were in apostasy, which is why they needed to be called back to God, because as a nation, I mean, you think, Israel, Jews, are, are, is, is it even possible? They have the prophets, they have the, the histories, they have Moses and Elijah, and they have David and Solomon, and, and you mean Israel, those they could live, yep, even to this day. They say that 90% of Jews in Israel are not observant. They have, a, they, they, they have a, a high percentage of the population who are even atheists. In Israel today. And so, as at that time, there were people who were living their own life, doing their own thing, and not giving um, regard to the way of the Lord. Zachariah said to the angel... Um, back in Luke 1, uh, verse 18. How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him. This is almost comical. Do you know who I am? <laughs> like, I, is what, this happens every day, yeah? Angels just appear in the temple. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring to you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that, that these things take place. You can't say amen. All right, you're not going to say nothing. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. It, it, notice the contrast when we get to Mary. Mary. <laughs> And so the angel's like, okay, look, this is, this is going to be the sign. You're not going to be able to talk. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. And they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. So obviously something happened to him in there. Because the people witnessed the impact of the encounter. They didn't see the angel, they didn't hear what was said, but they know something happened. Corroborating evidence. And when his time of service was ended, verse 23, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Angelic encounter. And in this encounter, we see that John has been prophesied to be conceived and born, and there's aspects there that he would not drink any strong drink or wine that relate to the Nazarite vow that Samson was under. when you go back in judges and read the account of Samson and see that he was under a Nazarite vow which also meant that he didn't cut his hair. And some have said that actually John the Baptist fulfilled that. He was living like a wild man in the wilderness. His appearance was scary. And part of that was because he didn't cut his hair, it's been suggested. And yet we see that it's prophesied that John the Baptist will be the fulfillment as he comes in the spirit of Elijah he fulfills the mission of Elijah, the purpose of Elijah, albeit them being a different person. Given to prepare the way for the Lord. So, after hundreds of years of nothing, all of a sudden, there's an outburst of angelic activity. This being the first expression of that. Let's move on verses 26 to 38, the announcement given to Mary. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And so God in his great wisdom lines up these activities in a way that compounds the revelation of his intent. It's not as if he just appeared to Mary and Joseph was going to be like, you seen those memes? If Joseph was Jamaican. (laughs) Mary, how can it be? It cannot be, sir. I mean, if it was just Mary, it, it, they might have felt, well, an angel. Mm. Was it really an angel or was it an unclean spirit? Hmm. But what the Lord done was work miraculously in Zachariah and Elizabeth's life in a way that served as a witness and a reference and a testimony to Mary and Joseph. So that they're able to say, ah, but look, the Lord's working over there just as he said. Doing that which was physically impossible, improbable at best, but nonetheless significant, causing Elizabeth to conceive. She was clearly with child by the time six months had passed. And so they knew it had been fulfilled. And so as they stood in the light of that, and Gabriel references back to that. He's an angel, he could just say like he did to Zechariah, take my word for it. But he references Mary back to that and says, check Elizabeth, look what's going on with her. (laughs) And such giving greater confidence that this outlandish prediction would be fulfilled. Look at God using angels to announce his will and purpose. When you just have a quick reflection on the ministry of angels, you think back to the Garden of Eden, and you see an angel placed at the garden after Adam and Eve have been ejected, and he's placed there with a flaming sword as a, a guard, and yet even in his guarding There's a sense of, I'm here to avert the judgment or execute the judgment, as the case may be. If you try and cross the line, I'll execute judgment. If you heed my presence, judgment is averted. Abraham, visited by an angel as they discuss Sodom and Gomorrah. If there's 50 people, if there's 30 people, if there's 20, negotiating. The angels go to Sodom and Gomorrah. What happens in Sodom and Gomorrah? Judgment falls. Balaam appears, the angel appears to the donkey in numbers. And the donkey refuses to move. And to the point where he has to tell Balaam, (laughs) we're not going anywhere, you know. Because there was an angel there ready to execute judgment. We see Daniel visited by an angel. Um, And if I remember rightly, this is the only other named angel apart from Gabriel. So Gabriel and Michael are the two angels that are named in Scripture. And yet he brings Daniel a message through much warfare. He said, I was dispatched weeks ago, but I had to to do some work out here to get to you. And yet it was quite unique because in that instance, he wasn't declaring judgment, but actually declaring the lifting of judgment. The people were in bondage, they were in exile, and he was predicting the point at which, and you can see this in Daniel 9, they would be freed. And that being a direct declaration of the coming of the Son of Man, where we are now in the book of Luke. Instances where Elijah sees an angelic army, and so... Out of character, if you like, for angelic intervention, and only correspondent with the appearance of an angel in the book of Daniel, we see that God, in this instance, have dispatched angels, angels that declare the hope of being freed from judgment through the coming of the Saviour. This is what it says in Hebrews about the ministry of angels. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Angelic interventions were not daily occurrences. They were not happening every minute. You know, there was a time coming up in the faith when people would always be talking about how they saw angels. And yet, when we look at Scripture, it was a very infrequent, a very rare occurrence. And yet, we see that they are sent out to serve those who are to inherit salvation. And in this instance... We see the way in which they are serving that purpose by bringing the news of the Savior, the heir of salvation, the one through whom salvation comes. And so let's be encouraged. God is faithful and true to his word. He keeps his promises. And he promised that he would send a Savior. And he announced it by angelic intervention. And we recognize that the testimony of those who experienced the encounter with angels was regarded to be true because it actually happened as they said. And it couldn't have happened any other way apart from the work of God. God is faithful to honor those who honor his name. We see that in Zechariah and Elizabeth. We see that in the life of Mary and Joseph. And we see that in our own lives, how God is faithful. He is faithful to make his will known. This wasn't stuff that was done in secret. This was done in ways that could be verified, could be objectively evaluated, and be proven to be truly a work of God. And God continues to make his will known. He has done so through his word. And this ought to encourage us to trust in God's word because he is faithful to perform it. And that doesn't mean our interpretation of his word. Because there are times we get it wrong. And we, we place greater expectations on God than he's declared of himself. And so I'm going to invite us to pray and give thanks to the Lord for the way in which he's intervened in history to reveal his will, and that primarily being that Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the hope of humanity, and all who put their faith in him are able to experience everlasting life and right standing with God, with confidence. There is nothing else like the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're in any doubt, I challenge you to search. When you look at other writings, you see, I mean, even down to writings like the Quran, and other major works of literature, and and religious literature, very often, they're littered with fictional names of places and people. Stories that don't have any kind of logic, that don't add up, that don't make practical, real sense. God's not calling us to put our faith in something that is sounds ridiculous. It may not sound human at times angelic intervention is not something normal, but it's not beyond the scope of God to perform. So may we be encouraged today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the fact that you are faithful, that you do keep your promises, that all of the promises that you've made in the scripture are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. We thank you, just as Luke set out at the time, to give Theophilus certainty in that which he has been taught. Lord, we're able to have continued certainty today. And we pray, Lord, that you would use this to galvanize our hearts as we walk with you through your word, through the gospel according to Luke that, Lord, you would strengthen us in you, that you would draw us closer to you, that, Lord, you would reveal yourself to us through your word in ways that would transform our lives. Help us to be bold in our declaration of your truth. And we ask these things in your name, Lord. Amen. Amen.